Oh, Canada, a vast, idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottaway game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how goes it today? Oh, it goes great. I don't even know. Is that grammatically correct? It's yeah. going well. How are you, Tim? I'm doing well. The, the worm gave me permission to pass this morning on my way to the studio, so today must be a good day. Yeah, there's a lot of construction going on around the studio. I don't know if you've noticed, but I think they're rerouting some of the worm's um, tunnels, some of his uh, areas of bypass. I think they're uh, doing some rerouting and some uh, renovations. Well, he's getting bigger, Lance. And this episode today, Lance, is... Has nothing to do with the worm. Has really nothing to do with the the worm of Wormtown, but it has to do with a new podcast from our friends at Texas Crew and our friends John and Jonathan, who put on a podcast called Chillingworth. Now, you would think that Chillingworth is something like a, um, like a name that would uh, evoke some ominous feelings, but it's actually the name of a judge, uh, Curtis Chillingworth, and he was murdered, presumably murdered, on uh, June 15th, 1955 in Florida. It's a very fascinating murder. Uh, Curtis Chillingworth and his wife Marjorie were murdered, and as the two hosts, John and John, uncover the details of their murder, they start to uncover this like seedy underbelly of the uh, of the area as well. So it's it's got this noir type feel to it. It does, and it's just I I cannot stop thinking about the horrific way that the Chillingworths were killed, and uh, so that really kind of takes me through all of it, all the whole story mentally, thinking of how how horribly they suffered. To be honest, I, it's it's just t- terrible. Yeah, it's a lot to unpack, really. It like you know the onion theory. You you peel back layers of this, and you just start revealing more. It's got everything from uh, corruption on the uh, you know community level to the government level, and uh, a disappearance, and then they find the bodies. And like you said, the the way they were disposed of and and presumably murdered was particularly disturbing. Okay, so check out the podcast Chillingworth from our friends Jonathan Payne and John Mass, and thank you very much.
Welcome to Crawl Space. John Mass and Jonathan Payne of Chillingworth. How are you today, guys? Doing great. How are you guys? Excellent. Thank you guys for having us. Yeah, doing well over here. We've uh, been familiar with this story since we uh, first spoke to you guys. I guess it was a little bit, it was a while ago now. It was about a year and a half ago. Okay, yeah. And uh, so we've kind of uh, been interested in, in your journey here and your show, Chillingworth, is excellent. And it came out a while ago and it's produced by Nighthouse and Texas Crew, our friends over there at Texas Crew. So congratulations on the show. Thank you. I imagine it's been uh, quite a journey. Uh, absolutely. Actually, um, it started before we, we got together with Texas Crew. John and I, uh, the, the story takes place in, in South Florida, specifically the, the core place that it takes place is West Palm Beach. Um, and John and I both grew up here. Um, and, and the story takes place in 1955. But um, our parents um, grew up, um, kind of during that time period, and we're both young attorneys at the time. So we grew up hearing about the case from our our dads, who were, as I mentioned, were attorneys. So we've been intrigued in the case since we were kids. So um, John and I, in, in about 2011, thought we would get together and um, do a documentary on on this case. And um, so that's kind of how it all started. And and um, you know, initially we thought we were going to just focus on doing a documentary. Um, and then we, we considered doing a, um, you know, documentary series, but, um, eventually once we got together with uh, Texas crew, we decided that, um, that we would, you know, in an attempt to gain some traction and, and an audience that we, we'd, we'd uh, kind of follow a model similar to yours. And, and that is to create a podcast to, to get that pique that interest and then hopefully something um, you know along the lines of a documentary or scripted show will will follow. Oh, that's really flattering. Thanks guys. And we have the the mutual acquaintance of uh, the Texas crew production team. Uh, they're awesome guys and it's so cool that you got on their radar to uh, you know pitch them this case and they decided to move ahead with you guys for the podcast version of it but you just said that you wanted to do a documentary uh, I have two questions what drew you to a case from 1955 and are you still planning on doing anything uh, documentary related well as far as the case goes it we were pretty familiar with it um, as as kids and then into our adulthood but we we didn't know the, the the grisly details and the the, the fascinating um, subplots. So um, once uh, we we decided to look into it because it it was something that had affected the community. It, it kind of created a sense of of uh, uh, it, it sort of eroded this the, the confidence everyone had in the justice system for a while because it involved the murder of a judge. And we knew that from our parents, but we we uh, were had a chance to. Um, look into it more. We both decided to to uh, consider it as a documentary around the same time. And the more we uh, read about it and and talked to older people who we knew our parents' age, uh, the more convinced we were that we needed to tell the story. And um, it was getting to the point because everybody was in their late 80s, mid to late 80s, who was around at the time and involved. Um, that. It, it was the stage of their lives where, you know, we really had to talk to them or it would be too late to get 
a lot of personal uh, reflection on the story. Um, so we decided, you know, we had to dive into it, and which we did. And as Jonathan said, we got pretty far along on the documentary, um, the one-off documentary that we were doing when uh, I decided to show it to Brad and Rick from Texas Crew um, just to kind of get their uh, advice. And they uh, proposed that we collaborate on a better and more um, expansive version of the documentary, make it into a doc series even, and possibly an episodic show. So we reshot a lot of the interviews, shot some new ones um, uh, with, with Brad and Rick and Texas crew. And then, as Jonathan said, we decided to go uh, go forward with the, with the podcast. But um, as far as the story is concerned, um, you'll, you, know, you guys are familiar with it. We'll talk about it in a little bit more, um, obviously, uh, in a few minutes, but but it was just a, it's a very dense, dark, um, intricate story that's sprawling. It goes over the course of five years. It it's in a place where a lot of cultures clash. Um, Palm Beach County, which was the the home of the town of Palm Beach, which is this kind of um, principality where Mar-a-Lago everybody knows about now is located, and then West Palm was this sort of deep south county seat. And then to the West, uh, was this very rural, very poor area known as the glades around Lake Okeechobee. Yeah. One of the poorest places in, in the United States. So, yeah. So that, that created a landscape that, uh, led to a lot of, um, really interesting, um, relationships among, um, among people who had to kind of traverse, um, those different environments to survive and to thrive and, the characters in our story um, were were that that were that kind of uh, people. They they were uh, people who knew Palm Beach. They knew they they were from West Palm Beach, um, but they also knew the rural areas and would kind of go back and forth um, among all three. So that in itself was interesting. But the main thing that's interesting to us uh, was interesting at the beginning was the three principal um, characters behind the murders uh, that are at the heart of the story and uh, their relationships, um, how they relied on each other um, to carry out these, this series of criminal acts over the course of five or six years and how their relationships uh, uh, began to dis- disintegrate after a while. So it kind of gave, gives you a window into the criminal mind, the different reasons people commit crimes, uh, how they react differently um, personally to what they've done, whether they seek redemption or not, all the things that are fascinating to us um, were, were, were in the story once we took a close look at it. Okay, so introduce us to Judge Chillingworth and his wife Marjorie. These are the two primary uh, central characters in your uh, podcast. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that's, that's, that's right. And um, just to kind of take a step back, the Chillingworth family was a, a, a pioneer family in West Palm Beach uh, and, and were kind of the four, his forefathers were uh, some of the founding members of, of the city of West Palm Beach. So um, the, the Chillingworth name was very well known in South Florida and Chillingworth him, himself um, went on to become uh, a circuit court judge at 26 and he was, he was the youngest jurist um, um, to be named to that position in, in Florida history. So basically the story centers on the Chillingworths who, who were 
abducted and and murdered, um, and and that took place in 1955. And so um, at that time, he was in his late 50s, and his wife Marjorie was also in her late 50s, and he was nearing retirement. So which makes it all the more um, devastating, really. Um, and so. Yeah, Chillingworth was the the pillar of the of the legal community. He he was, um, as one journalist said, he was the foundation of moral strength for, um, you know, for West Palm Beach. And he had opportunities actually to to go to a, to a higher court, but he he was a West Palm Beach loyalist, and he um, you know stood for. Um, you know, integrity and and was just a, a very prominent member, not only in uh, of the legal community, not only in Florida but in, in the whole South. So, and then and then John, you went to well, I was just going to add real quickly. Uh, you have to remember that back then there weren't as many judges, and and they in in the case of Judge Chillingworth, he had to run for office. So he was a politician essentially too. He would every uh, four years he'd have to run for office, and he'd campaign, make speeches. He would give a political campaign speech and there'd be 5,000 people um, in the audience. So he, he was a really prominent figure and he would did a lot of public speaking. So it's a little bit different. We don't really necessarily know who our circuit court judges, a lot of us nowadays. So, but, but as far as who, who the main characters were, he, is, he and his wife were, their murder was the catalyst for this whole uh, saga. But what, what happens in a lot, as happens in a lot of, uh, stories that, that revolve around a murder, the people behind it really became the focus for us because we had uh, a, remarkable, a remarkable amount of information about them through uh, our interviews with people, as we said, who were still around from that time. Um, the chief detective's personal files, Judge Chillingworth's diary, um, but most important, we, we had... 50 hours of uh, surveillance audio tapes that um, that the detectives for the Florida Department, I'm sorry, Florida Sheriff's Bureau had recorded of one of the suspects. So it's which was our which was our holy grail, because we we initially when John and I started, we could not find these tapes anywhere. We grew up hearing about how um, the criminals, uh, one of the the primary criminals involved in the in the killing of Judge and Mrs. Chillingworth um, were secretly recorded by the Florida Sheriff's Bureau, and we could not find the tapes anywhere. We had we had lots of connections in the area. Uh, went to the historical society, went to all the, the different uh, courthouses and and archival. Looked at the Florida bar, and we couldn't find them. And so we we started to go in a different direction. Um, we, because initially when we were kind of brainstorming and talking about it, these tapes were going to drive, we didn't know what was on them, but we knew they were juicy. We knew that they were going to provide a lot of insight into the, these criminal minds. But, um, so we were really, really bummed out that we couldn't find the tapes anywhere. And then, um, interestingly, a childhood friend of mine had the tapes and we found out through, through a series of uh, connections that he had the tapes and then we we got them and it just kind of changed our whole direction and uh, so we were absolutely right there's just so much um, incredible information on there the tapes are a little bit 
We did digitize them. We took them down. They were magnetic tapes. We digitized them, but they're still sometimes a little challenging to listen to, but we try to kind of, um, you know, preface what we're saying, or at least kind of recap what was said on the tapes. Um, but, but it provides so much information that basically they, they kind of drive the podcast. I got to go back a little bit. You said a friend of yours happened to have these tapes. How did the, how did your friend get? A hold uh, of well, them? he uh, he was um, a DEA agent in this area, and he was friends with a, a judge named Judge Mounts, who who had the tapes. I think Judge Mounts got the tapes because, which is mind boggling, that these tapes from this what was deemed to be the crime of the century in Florida were just going to be tossed aside and not kept in, in the archives of, of any kind of, you know, institution, which is mind boggling. And so Judge Mounts said, you know, sure, I'll keep them. And then, you know, Judge Mounts had them for a while and then asked Jim Bourne, who went on to become a crime uh, novelist as well, um, if he wanted the tapes. And Jim said, sure. So it was that, it was, it was that kind of thing. And um, so it was, it was just kind of actually we we have tons of coincidences of people that we've met along the way, but that was that was a big one. I hadn't talked to Jim since since I was um, maybe twelve years old, so um, I'm a lot older than that now. It was it was really yeah. really a stroke of luck. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's remarkable. And these tapes were going to go into some sort of archive. Well, eventually they will. They will. We're um, we're we're still working with them and and um, transcribing. Uh, we, we we have some ideas for uh, annotating the tapes and and um, putting them out in different forms. But yeah, eventually they will. And um, just one one more thing about the tapes: the, the, apart from actually cutting in lines from the conversations that. Uh, the suspect and his two friends who were informants um, uh, carried on. Uh, we just, a lot of the information that filled in holes in the story that weren't available through uh, the court files or through interviews, uh, we drew from uh, these conversations that the three guys had. And it's just really fascinating. The guy who's a suspect was very intelligent, um, obviously, not a not a good person um, in terms of the things he was willing to do uh, to others for his criminal um, purposes, but but like a lot of criminals, had a range of dimensions and you know showed a lot of kindness in, in many ways, and and also was very very bright guy, a very intellectually curious guy. So that that window into his mind and and his description of his evolution as a criminal and from the time he was 14 years old in um, Oklahoma and LA um, was really fascinating to me. That's one of the um, most interesting, th interesting things about our story is how we had access to, um, to what was going on um, with this character in particular, because we had the surveillance tapes and what motivated him, how he, what his regrets were, um, how complex of a person he was. And uh, so we, we've layered that into the podcast um, all the way through, in particular in the last few episodes. And, and furthermore, he, he reveals details about the crimes they committed. So these specific crimes, um, including the, the murder of Judge and Mrs. Chillingworth. So, uh, and there were others. So um, 
hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about some of those other things they were involved with. But so it was it was incredibly eerie. Um, and, you know, I you know, the thing that I still, you know, am just freaked out a little bit about is his laugh and how, uh, you know, how maniacal and, and, and diabolical uh, he's. He, yeah. he could be when he was describing some of these really heinous acts. So it's, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty disturbing. Yeah. It's, it's very disturbing for sure. Now you said earlier that this is a very dense case and it does seem to be that way when you take into consideration the area and the mentality, uh, this criminal syndicate, I guess that, uh, that you've encountered, uh, when you figured out like how dense this case was, did either one of you say, you know, maybe this isn't the one we should in, jump in, uh, feet first with, or did that entice you even further to dig? Deep? It definitely drew us, uh, encouraged us to, to uh, spend more time on the case and to exhaust more possible possible uh, resources or, or exhaust every possible uh, method of getting as much information as possible. So it really, it, it, um, it drew us deeper into the case. And when it, actually the, the initial idea for, for the, for the documentary, Jonathan was already thinking about it. My sister, Nancy uh, had been uh, talking with a friend who was on the, Florida Supreme Court, actually, at the time, and he's kind of a student of the case as well. And she um, really inspired me to to uh, to get deeper into the the story. So, um, yeah, when you hear when you watch uh, when you, when you listen to the podcast, um, you'll see that the murders are really, as I said, that's what everything revolves around of Judge Chillingworth and his wife Marjorie, but. Uh, the series of crimes, very inventive, uh, very original crimes that the that the people involved in the Chillingworth murders carried out are just mind boggling. So, for instance, they uh, they stole radium from the radiology uh, department at Good Samaritan Hospital in, in West Palm, where Jonathan and I were both born um, because they had. Uh, decided that they could peddle it to either hospitals in Latin America or possibly revolutionary groups who could weaponize uh, the radium, um, which you know, of course is very lethal if it's if you're exposed to it. So they that you know as far as we know that's the only time uh, radium was um, was uh, ripped off from a hospital um, you know, for those purposes. And of course uh, it it may or may not have led to the death of a friend of theirs who, who drove from West Palm to Miami an hour and a half trip with, uh, with the radium in a satchel, um, in the passenger seat of his car. He died not long after. And, uh, so we don't know exactly what happened, but, but, um, that's just, that's a subplot which affected the main story. And there are many of those that are similar, really colorful, bizarre stories. Like yeah. That. Another, another one was the, um, is, is the, attempted um, robbery of a, a truckload full of arms that were um, were headed for Nicaragua to to help with the um, to assist in the revolution and uh, Nicaragua and um, you know one of the one of the suspects was was um, involved in that and then eventually um, he eventually fled to Brazil so the story, 
takes it extends all the way down to Rio de Janeiro, to South America, <laughs> um, where he, you know, this is this one of the suspects um, you know, started his was hoping to start his life over again, but um, there was no extradition treaty uh, between the U.S. Yeah. and Brazil at the time, and and he went down there. He's the one who was very intellectually curious, and he actually loved Rio and was planning to stay there with his wife and and new mistress who he um, he encountered while he was in Rio. And um, things didn't work out exactly the way he planned, but uh, that obviously made it difficult for the detectives to uh, to bring the case to a close. So it it's um, but it's kind of representative of the way the story goes. There's another um, really to me intriguing moment where um, one of the suspects is an attorney um, who has a life insurance policy double indemnity life insurance policy on his partner um, and, of course, plans to kill his partner to collect uh, $100,000, which was a million dollars essentially back in 1956. So that effort took place in a uh, strip club in West Palm that was closed um, and um, involved not killing the guy uh, but in the club, but knocking him out, uh, drowning him in a tub of canal water, then taking him out uh, 10 miles west of West Palm Beach and pushing him in his, with his car with him behind the wheel, dead, into a canal so that it would look like he was drowned in the canal rather than you know, drowned in West Palm Beach in a tub of water in a, backstage in a strip club. So those are the kinds of things that don't typically happen in a um, – you know, uh, the trajectory of uh, career criminals that that are you know pretty routine in this story. And which is also so mind boggling to know that that our little community, less than 50,000 people um, back in the 1950s, that kind of thing that, you know, the seedy underworld uh, nefarious activities that were going on you know, right beneath everyone's noses. It, it's yeah. just hard to kind of imagine. And the frequency, the philandering and the, and the carousing and, and the womanizing was really remarkable by the standards of any period. And I think basically the story shows that, you know, times haven't really changed or that we're not, we haven't advanced or, or devolved or whatever, however you want to describe it in terms of what men will do when they, they feel that they're, uh, they have the freedom to do so, and the suspects were uh, just constantly on the prowl. Um, one of them managed to convince five different women who were clients of his as an attorney who he was having affairs with to pose nude for him in his law office. So um, there's only one problem. Yeah, he he he, he wasn't didn't frame the images very well, so. He included his law school diploma in the background with his name on it. So, Oops. and once the, the photos were circulated, it was fairly easy to identify who, who'd taken them. So he ended up being disbarred over that. But that's, you know, that these are the kind of guys who we're talking about. They were, um, they were dodgy on many levels, including, you know, their personal lives and, and the way they, how faithful they were to their wives. So there's a, there's this uh, group of players, sinister characters that, we get introduced to in this case, how did they intersect with judge Chillingworth and, and what did they do to him? What, like why, why is he a victim to, to their uh, syndicate? Well, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm just going to say that 
we've been fairly cryptic um, thus far in the interview, and that's by design, trying not to to reveal too much. But um, give me a little. <laughs> well, there were the three the men, the men we've described um, as uh, trying to kill uh, their law partner in a tub of canal water backstage in a strip club, uh, stealing radium were the ones who killed the chilling worse that's you know we'll reveal that and they were um a they they were not suspects at all for the first four years following there were some people thought they might have been involved but they were not official suspects until about four years had passed so um that's those are the guys who are the focus of the of the story and um but i think it's they, important to there were other suspects as well though right yeah there were there were corrupt law officials um that was you know corruption running rampant people who were pissed off at judge Schilling were for sentencing them right. to long long periods of time in the, prison the mob their families the mob some suspected the mob yeah yeah the the there was a there was a, a mob like killing that also involved taking people out in a boat and and throwing them into the atlantic ocean um a couple a few months before the chilling wars were killed. So there were other suspects. So to answer your question, these guys were um, may or may not have been involved right. in the, in the murders of the chilling wars, but they were, um, they were present and, and related to um, uh, the case in other ways. Yeah. They were, they were close to uh, some of the law enforcement figures who were, who were investigating the case. Um, so they were, they were um, high profile people who some people suspected without any evidence, but but were not officially suspects. Right. right. And and one of the other things, you, we talked about some of the other uh, activities these guys were involved with, but, you know, two things at the core of the story, two different, um, two different uh, areas were moonshining and, and Belita. And so that is, that plays a very prominent role in, um, these these um, suspects were very much involved in that. Um, and Belita is a, I'm not sure if you've heard of that before, but it's a- It's basically the numbers racket. It's a numbers racket. Yeah, for sure. And it, it came from Cuba to, to Tampa in the late 1800s here in, in Florida. But um, that plays a major role in why uh, Judge Chillingworth and these guys intersected for sure. Yeah, because essentially Belita, the, the numbers racket and moonshine, which surprisingly was still popular in the 50s, even though prohibition was long over, it was popular because it was cheap and it was really powerful and it was like it was a cheap high. So that was sort of the those were the fundamental rackets that, that people got involved in. So uh, one of the people involved in the murders or actually the three guys involved in the murders of the Chillingworths um, had had created this um, this system of shaking down the numbers racketeers and the moonshiners for money. And they were concerned that judge Chillingworth might uh, bring all of that to an end. And that was what was behind the murders. Um, And we, we, we know we learned that fairly early on in the podcast, but the point is uh, the the corrupt system um, was what, and, and perpetuating the, the corrupt system of racketeering was what led to the judge's death. And and how was he murdered? Yeah, can you can you walk us through the night of uh, of Judge Chillingworth's murder? 
Sure. He, Judge, Judge and Mrs. Chillingworth uh, were, were kind of uh, members of, of uh, I guess you would call it the, the, the blue blood um, uh, demographic in Palm Beach and West Palm Beach. And they've been invited to dinner at, at the home of uh, uh, a friend's friends in Palm Beach. They, they finished dinner and they were driving home to really their second home, which was a beach house that they spent a lot of time in in the summertime. They, their main it was house in Manalapan. Just south of, of Palm Beach. Yeah. And their main house was in West Palm. And so uh, they, they, they went to, got to their home around 10 o'clock at night. We're, we're in bed or before midnight. And uh, two men um, beached a boat behind their house, abducted them, uh, dragged them down to the boat, and took them about two miles out into the Atlantic Ocean, into the Gulf waited, Stream, into the Gulf Stream, weighted them down with um, with uh, ammunition belts that were filled with uh, divers' belt weights, basically you know lead lead weights. And they were, um, Mrs. Chillingworth was tossed overboard. And then Judge Chillingworth, um, even though he, his hands were tied, managed to push himself overboard, probably because he thought he might be able to swim away from the boat and make it to shore. He was a really strong sw- swimmer. Um, but the two guys who had abducted the couple um, pulled the boat up to the judge and hit him over the head with a, the butt of a shotgun, dazed him, then wrapped a spare anchor around his neck, and he wasn't able to uh, stay keep his head above water, and he, he went down as well. So it was a pretty horrific, um, painful, uh, right, utterly, yeah. utterly uh, frightening death for the, for the couple. And just, just a couple of things. They were, as I mentioned earlier, they were, they were nearing – Judge Schillingworth was nearing retirement. They think they were thinking about traveling, um, you know, abroad. Um, in addition to that, uh, the Schillingworths had three daughters, and they were supposed to be coming down to uh, the home and spending some time with them and Manalapan. And they were they were thinking about being there. And so, there's question as to, you know, you know, would they have pulled off these murders if the, if the Chillingworth daughters were there. Um, I think law enforcement indicated that probably they wouldn't have done it. Whereas, uh, we, we have the guys on tape saying they would have had to take out the entire house. So, so it's, what's really crazy is we read the testimony and, 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 um, you know, a lot of, um, you know, of, of these guys. Um, but, when they reveal it on tape and you can actually hear them describing it, it just, it basically sends a chill down your spine. It's, it's so, it's so uh, eerie for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Very chilling way and a horrifying way to uh, be murdered. I I would have to imagine. And uh, does that make you guys emotional to talk about? Yeah, it does. And and, um, it's in particular because, um, our families knew the couple. They knew um, our parents knew Judge and Mrs. Chilling with our grandparents. My grandparents were pretty close with them. They're they're my grandparents' age, and uh, and my my dad was at their home. Uh, my dad was a young attorney and was invited over there for a cocktail party. Was at their home a week before the abduction. No matter how far you run from them, childhood tragedies have a way of catching back up with you. 
So is true of elite scuba diver Veronica West, who is about to encounter something unexplainable at the bottom of the ocean, something that will draw her back to her home on Sinclair Island, Maine. There, she'll lead a dangerous rescue mission to the bottom of the Bay of Fundy, home of the world's largest tides, and something horrific down in the depths. Listen to Narcosis, the latest horror fiction show on Realm's premier horror channel, Undertow. Narcosis is available now. Search for Undertow or Narcosis wherever podcasts are served. Hi, listeners. I'm Vanessa Richardson, host of the podcast Serial Killers. Like many of you, I'm fascinated by the darker side of humanity. What causes someone to develop such deadly desires and why they decide to act on them? For the past six years, I've been able to explore these curiosities weekly, tapping into the mental states of the world's most notorious killers, examining their backgrounds and habits, searching for answers. If you haven't had a chance to check out our show, there's truly no better time to dive in. With hundreds of episodes to binge and new ones released weekly, Serial Killers is the perfect podcast for any avid true crime fan. Follow Serial Killers on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. And, it, and another thing that, um, so, so yeah, I was always, you know, we, we, we wanted to, in making this podcast, it was very important because we spent a lot of time on the, um, on, on the criminals and what they were thinking. And, um, and we, we, that's because we have the most information, but we also wanted to be very, very, um, considerate of, of the Chillingworth family. And we, we did interview one of the daughters, Marie, who was lovely. And we interviewed her a couple of times. Um, and, um, so, so yes, it was. And especially when we talked to her, it was very emotional, I'm sure for her, of course, but, but for us as well. So we've tried to, you know, make this, um, you know, certainly we're interested in the criminal minds, but, and, and, um, in their MO, but we also were wanted to be cognizant of, of the Chillingworth family and, and, and acknowledge that, you know, these really prominent, good people with, with great integrity were, you know, were murdered brutally. And it, they weren't uh, discovered right away. This went unsolved for a period of time. It went, unso- so it went unsolved for several years. And even though there were some people who, who had very strong suspicions about who, who did it before that point. Um, but, but what happened was a, there was another murder in Palm Beach County that um, these same people were involved in. Um, and the investigation into that murder, and this is something that I think happens fairly often, is what led to uh, led the detectives to to figure out who who had killed the Chillingworths. Yeah. But but however, the, the, but however, once they figured it out and they were certain who had done it, there was something that was really a huge obstacle, which was uh, the, the legal standard of corpus delecti. Corpus delecti just means that you cannot convict somebody of a murder if you if if you haven't found a body, you can't produce the body of a victim. 
you can only convict some someone of murder if two eyewitnesses to that murder testify. And in this case, of course, the two eyewitnesses were the only two eyewitnesses were two of the were the two guys who had killed him. So it was it was uh, something that took a lot of ingenious detective work and and uh, manipulation of the of the suspects to to accomplish. Because initially it looked like the perfect crime. There were no you know no bodies, no eyewitnesses, uh, limited evidence, and um, so. Um, yeah, it did take some brilliant detective work, spe- specifically a, a man by the name of Henry Lubbard of the Florida Sheriff's Bureau, who kind of started putting things together. But um, they did have a pretty they they had a they kind of had the perfect uh, scheme and, and crime going for a while until they like so many do. It's just you know started to fall apart. They started to turn on one another. Started and well, at first they yapped to yeah. to. Um, to friends. Yeah. So this uh, detective that you just mentioned, he must have been a little bit ahead of his time if he was able to do some uh, brilliant detective work, figuring out what the truth was with no bodies and very little evidence. Was he somebody that in your research appeared to be, uh, you know, not so much a police officer from the 50s, but somebody who had some foresight in innovative uh, detecting. Absolutely. Yeah, he was he was extremely progressive and uh, inventive. And uh, he was uh, also he had a great imagination. So essentially what really made it all happen for him were recordings and not just the recordings that we've described to you. Um, He he put the suspects under surveillance by placing uh, microphones in, in a reel-to-reel, clumsy reel-to-reel recording machine um, in the trunk of c- different cars. Um, he placed microphones in um, ultimately in a Holiday Inn in Melbourne, Florida, um, which is where um, the, the 50 hours that we have were recorded and uh, this is oh, you know, one this, time he was in the trunk of the yeah, car. Yeah, he would, he would <laughs> hang out in the trunk of the car, kind of like cradling, <laughs> cradling the, the reel-to-reel tape recorder while while um, the suspect was talking outside of the car or even inside of the car. But the thing about the recording, and we kind of take it for granted now because we have such incredible technology, but uh, it was it had been done before in the States, but not very many times to the, to the extent that Henry Lovern um, – carried out these surveillance operations and um, it really was remarkable. And among other things, that was one of the things. It was also pretty um, um, insane the way he was able to um, lure the the suspect who was uh, down in Brazil back to the country um, through the the use of informants. Um, Basically it came down to two things. One, he convinced uh, the suspect that the suspect's partner owed him a lot of money from this financial fraud scheme that they'd ca- they were also carrying out. Yeah, we didn't and, talk about the yeah, Ponzi, that, yeah, Ponzi that, scheme. They had a Ponzi scheme, which was they had a very, <laughs> yeah. very well-oiled Ponzi uh, scheme machine That's where going. they made their most money. So, so, so the informants convinced um, this guy, Floyd, that, that, um, that his, his partner, Joe, had um, – was holding out on him. And plus they convinced the, the informants convinced 
Floyd that Joe was having an affair with his wife, Peggy. So this combined uh, was enough to draw him back from his new poem in Rio de Janeiro, which was, you know, which was, as we said, a place that he had grown to really love. So, yeah, so Lovern was way ahead of his time. He was like a sage detective. Lovern, he placed uh, informants into this into this group to plant these seeds that that weren't true. Correct. So these were just seeds of of, uh, suspicion that that he wanted them to plant in order to lure him out and to sort of turn one against another. Exactly. Right, right. Well, yeah, the, 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 the story of the affair was not true, um, but, but the, the financial fraud um, revenue sharing issue was something that was, we believe was true. We believe Joe uh, was holding out on his friend uh, Floyd, and that's what, uh, so there was something to that. But, but what's really unbelievable about it, and you know, this is something that we, I wasn't sure we were going to reveal, but I will say this, though. We Floyd basically we revealed a lot that we didn't intend to, but that's that's fine. Yeah. So, but 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 Floyd, when he came back to the states, the the very idea that he thought that he'd be able to recover this money, which was a ton of money, it was basically a half a million dollars in today's money, that he was going to be able to force Joe to go to wherever he had this money hidden, and um, and and split it with, with Floyd was a lot to expect. And we're not going to, without really revealing what happened, it, it was a lot more complicated for Floyd than, than simply coming up and saying, you know, Joe, um, hand over the money that you owe me. So um, Lovern had to orchestrate what was uh, very difficult to convince Floyd of in the first place. But, but um, once he came back to the States, he had to maintain in Floyd's mind that, the purpose for coming back to the States to confront Joe was, uh, was going to bear fruit. And, and, um, you know, when people make irrational decisions, sometimes after a few days, they, they start to see things more clearly. And that was all always a danger. So essentially without getting into too many details, once, um, the, the suspect Floyd was drawn back to the States, Lovern and his, his colleagues, Ralph Clark, who we who we interviewed, was one of them. Another detective had to maintain this charade, essentially, um, to keep uh, Floyd from figuring out that he had been had. Because it wasn't as simple as just arresting him when he came back to the states. They had to get him to talk about things on tape, um, and uh, which is which is you know, and, ha- and the informants had to be. Um, had to be convincing yeah. and not break down and not and not um, uh, let their poor acting, sometimes poor acting uh, skills, you know, get the get the best yeah. of them. Yeah, yeah, give them away. And things were happening. Lovern had to think on the on the fly because so you have your your big master plan, but then some of the the partners began to. I mean, it got ugly in terms of the the turning and and the possibility of. Uh, uh, hitmen were were hired. You know, one of the informants was um, was hired as as uh, I, I, maybe I shouldn't go there, John. Well, you can go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. But one of one of, no, one of the informants was hired by Joe to take Floyd out. So they started to uh, you know. So th- it was very tense in this situation leading up to um, to to the end. Where we, you didn't know, um, you know, you don't know as, as you're listening, 
who's going to live and who's going to die. And one Floyd is going to catch on yeah. to what what's been orchestrated be to bring him to bring him in. So and what Jonathan was just saying is that one of the two informants, both of the two informants were close close friends with with all three of the suspects, and but one of the one of the two informants had been hired by someone to to kill Floyd, who had been down in Brazil. So so uh, that was of course he wasn't going to do that because he was working for the state, but but um, that complicated this entire scenario. So this is something that I know it sounds confusing, but um, that's one of the reasons. And, and we, we take you through this with, through the voices of people who were there, people we interviewed and also um, people talking on their surveillance tape. So, um, and then we, we, we link everything they're saying in the context of the, the, the entire story. So, so essentially, yeah. essentially the, the, as Jonathan said at the, at the start of this conversation, uh, the, the tapes are provide the structure for the story, and um, they provide, um, I think, a, a better sense of how people um, were feeling through this entire um, operation, uh, investigation, and uh, attempt by criminals to get away with horrible crimes. You get a sense of, of the emotions of the people involved. Um, they're totally candid conversations, at least on the part of the suspect. Um, and um, it, it's almost poignant. I mean, it's strange how you're listening to somebody who has committed horrible crimes, but um, you can't, at least most people seem to have some kind of uh, sense of, of sympathy for, for him, um, which, you know, when you catch yourself feeling that way, it's, it's kind of an un, un, gives you an uneasy feeling, but I'm not sure that everybody will have I, sympathy for him. I definitely think some people do, but but at any rate, um, that's that's what's so um, incredible about what Henry Levern pulled off. He was able to um, to get these people in a place where they not only could be recorded, but recorded for a very long period of time um, in a very delicate dynamic, where um, at any moment, if if um, the suspects figured out what was happening. Uh, there could be, you know, something extremely violent and and um, grisly. And you know, we're it it's um, the ingredients are were all there. So you you'll you'll see. Yeah, was this was this something that you uh, found uh, any uh, resistance looking into? Because it seems like the roots run pretty deep down there. Well, the only the only issues we we had the really two two people involved who we interviewed and we spoke with who were, were involved. One was, one was um, actually the wife of one of the suspects one of the, the, who's still around. And we spoke with her on the phone. She wouldn't be interviewed. We talked to her for about six hours. Yeah, we talked to her for a long time. Yeah. And then, and then, so that was sensitive. And, and also um, the wife, the widow of one of the, one of the informants who was just delightful and really helpful to us. So but also Marie Chillingworth. And Marie Chillingworth, the daughter of the Chillingworth. So, yeah. so what, what we tried to do was, we 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 revealed you know, obviously as we said we we found a lot of information that was not in the public domain that people didn't know about through these detectives files and the recordings which hadn't been heard in 50 years and we we well filled, that's well, all when you said but the 50 years but but the public had never heard that. the public had never heard these recordings right they never, they weren't they were never introduced in the trial so so at any rate we we had all this information that was that was new that we revealed. But if there was something that was 
relevant in that information, but would be really damaging to the people who are still alive. Um, and we didn't have to use it. We, we were, we were sensitive to that. So we kind of protected two or three people involved, um, by, by not including information. However, we had plenty of relevant information as it was. So in other words, when it came down to choosing what information to include, if we had information that would really upset someone and information that was just as relevant that did not, of course, we would go with what was, what was, um, not, not upsetting. So at least to, right. But even, even that information in those interviews, we, it, it helped us shape the story and, 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 you know, build the, and, you know, build the whole story arc, uh, with that key information, even though we didn't necessarily use it specifically. Are things similar in the sense of how that area, uh, I guess, nurtures that criminal element? Because it sounds like it was pretty prevalent back then. Did you find any similarities to similar types of uh, criminal syndicates? Uh, You mean compared to today? Yeah, yeah. Like back then... uh, as you're looking at it today and you're looking at how it all went down back then, was there anything that stood out to you today that you'd look at and say, wow, that's, that's really similar. Like times go by, but nothing really changes. Well, I think that in that, in that the, the, the three men involved, you know, the three guys who we focus on because we have information about them and particularly the one who's on the recordings, they were career criminals, even though one of them was, also a judge, a municipal court judge, uh, but he was he was essentially a career criminal as well. And the other two men, one of whom was a black man, and the other was was white. Um, that goes on today, from you know everything we understand and everything that we observe. There there is a there's a world that is kind of par- a parallel universe where people um, just expect to continue to commit crimes throughout their adult adult life with with some objective possibly to, to get out of it, or uh, maybe to some extent they enjoy it. And that was, um, you know, again, that's what, that's what was so great about those recordings with respect to, to Floyd, um, because he, you know, he's not only talking occasionally about the crimes he's committed, he's, he's sort of ruminating about the choices he's made, why he's done it, how it's affected the people he loves, um, what he could have done, if he hadn't chosen that life, uh, what he wants to do in Rio de Janeiro, which is to, to live a life that, that does not involve committing crimes. So um, to answer your question, that, that to me is something that's timeless. And, you know, there were dodgy characters in, you know, among the Neanderthals, I'm sure, who, right. who would steal shit. And, um, but that's because it was their nature and um, so, yeah, I think I think it's there's not that much of a difference. One thing I, I, do good, want, I just want to say <laughs> how nonchalantly you dropped in one of the criminals was a judge that that's kind of the that's one of the most intriguing yeah. things about this. Since we, it's another judge. And in, in, in my research, um, he was a municipal judge. But in my research, I haven't found that happening very often in, in U.S. history. Where a judge where, kills another where judge. Where a judge kill, takes out another judge, although he was he was more of the mastermind behind it. But to me, that is one of the most intriguing things of this case, this this guy that um, seemed to have everything. He had 
um, charisma. He, you know, he's an established. He was a young attorney, but he had lots of possibilities. He aspired to be governor of Florida. Yeah, and um, had. And, and this is uh, this is Judge Peel, right? That's right. Yeah. Peel, which which makes this story even more yeah. incredible. So he had these these other two individuals that his uh, uh, that he definitely manipulated. But at the same time, one of the things that John and I have found that this specifically well. Floyd, who is was a, a white male, and, and Bobby, an African American, um, we haven't really talked yeah, about just, Bobby, who was the third third uh, part of this brethren, had a very strong relationship, which was very unusual for the times. Flo- Flo- yeah, Floyd and Floyd and Bobby were close friends, yeah. and um, they, you know, not just in terms of their collaborations um, as criminals, but they they would they would go skin diving together. Uh, Floyd and his wife Peggy would have Bobby over for dinner. Um, that was really unheard of. And Bobby um, was essentially the, the the leading figure in the in the underworld in the African American community in West Palm and Rivera Beach, the next community north. And um, he was, but he was um, very comfortable um, in having professional, so to speak, relationships with with um, the white. White, his white counterparts uh, was very confident um, uh, moving around in that world, even though it was a time of segregation. And this was the Deep South. Even though you know, people don't think of West Palm Beach, Palm Beach as being in the Deep South, it, and it, it was very much so. So that that's really fascinating. And the other thing is, ultimately, the, the rackets that we described, uh, the numbers racket, Belita, and Moonshining, that, those were most... Um, uh, profitable in the black communities because there weren't as many opportunities for entertainment and because, you know, the, 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 those populations, those, those communities were, were not um, as well off um, in particular in that time as the, the, the white communities. So the um, moonshine was more popular um, because it was less expensive, obviously. So ultimately these rackets uh, capitalized or, or exploited the black population more than than okay. um, any other uh, group in the area. So everything kind of revolved around um, those rackets um, in terms of the, 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 the political corruption and the criminal, the primary criminal enterprises. And that um, that's what that's what Joe Peel um, was making his fortune from right. um, d- d- shaking down the operators, the moonshine operators and he, the uh, Belita operators. He, yeah, he was a municipal money. judge. So they would have to call him first to get a warrant before they went and raided a, a Belita house. So, and he charged them a fee for that. That's so essentially. He, he, had, he you know, tipped them off, obviously. But another thing, John, you touched on just quickly. So they weren't all career criminals. Peel was not a career criminal, but. He, he forged this very one thing that John and I spent a lot of time developing is that the relationship that um, Joe and Floyd, they called him lucky. Um, Floyd, uh, they had this symbiotic relationship where um, they each were trying to lift each other up. And we, we mentioned that in one of the podcasts when there's a, um, an, a there's a, an assassination attempt on a prominent figure um, or, or they discuss it. Sorry, it's a it's a theoretical. You know, they wanted to right. kill one of uh, Joe's opponents for the U.S. House of Representatives, they never, and, yeah, they never and Floyd Floyd uh, Floyd had 
was was a sensible one when it came to that. And so, they, in other words, Joe needed Floyd to kind of help him um, achieve his political aspirations. And Floyd, who was kind of from a marginalized, poor family in Oklahoma, but he was very intelligent and knew he had potential, needed someone like Joe to sort of usher him into more more um, uh, another echelon of society, albeit through criminal um, methods. But that's what was at the heart of their relationship. And Bobby... Um, and there's a deep sense of loyalty all yeah. the way till the end. And Bobby yeah. uh, was was invited to, to become involved because he was sort of their entree into the black community. Bobby was not violent. He never relied on violence. So um, his ambition you know, brought him into something that was was much more sinister than he expected it to be. Interesting. Yeah. So um, real quick, what is skin diving? Is that like uh, that, skinny dipping? That's where you just have a mask and snorkel. But what, what, what these guys, these guys get have fins. You can have fins, but these guys, um, they went spearfishing. And this, oh. it was like the water here back then, even now it's really clear. It was like being in Tahiti. It was, it was amazing. So yeah, Bobby and Floyd would uh, borrow a boat and go out off of the town of Palm beach where, where our current um, um, president pl- comes down and plays golf, um, they would they would spearfish in the reefs right off of Palm Beach, which is essentially where they you know they passed over with um, with the Chillingworths when they abducted them. Ah, I see. How so? Uh, are we doing Chillingworth uh, in seasons? Did you just finish season one, and are we to expect season two? Well, that we have some ideas. We're 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 um, we just finished. We just published uh, episode thirteen, which was the final episode um, of the first, let's just say, stage of the story. And we're we're not sure exactly how how that's going to evolve. All right. Well, because it seems like you're unpacking a lot with all of the characters and even the uh, like the um, the the lineage of the characters from today back then. It feels like you can get. A few seasons with uh, with some of these uh, cast of characters. There's a lot of there's a lot of material. There 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 definitely is, and and the as far as the recordings go, the recordings alone raise a lot of questions and and open up a lot of possibilities. Yeah, and the recordings again, um, just listening to them um, alone is is um, mind boggling. You know, they they fit into the story and they play a significant role in the story, but just Looking, listening to them on their own um, is really entertaining and um, illuminating as far as what a criminal was like at the time and what the criminal mind was like. And they swear, um, it's, it's really amazing how, how profane it is. It's, um, if you think you've met somebody who, who curses a lot, these guys are on a different plane. It's you know, gratuitous use of the F word for the most simple things like pass me that pencil. You would not just say that you have to throw in some, something that's, that's off color. It's really amazing. And the words were the same back then, by the way. So no, this sounds fascinating. And it's so fortunate that you both were able to hear these recordings from so long ago, uh, having to do directly with this case and the, behaviors of these criminals because we talk about criminal behavior all the time and we have people on who you know give profiles and uh to get a doorway into that is is truly truly fascinating do you play a lot of these on the podcast we do and and the way the way it works is um through through the first several episodes we play them and they're more sort of abstract in in their they they give you 
a sense of what is to come, but you, we don't reveal when you hear them exactly who it is and what, what they're talking about specifically. But when the story catches up to the point in time when the recordings were made um, after Floyd returns from Brazil, now that we know that that happened, um, then we get in, we give you comp- all the context involved in, in, the, in the tape. So the answer to your question is, yeah, we, we play them all the way through. We play longer, you know, initially they're kind of short snippets and then, and then we hit play longer versions. Exactly. Contextually, you, you know, it fits right in and you, you kind of, they make the story and it's very easy to understand their specific roles and who's saying what. Wow. Well, great stuff, guys. Thank you so much for joining us here on Crawl Space today. And uh, we implore all of our listeners to check out Chillingworth. I think it's a great podcast. It's a fascinating story, tragic murders. And, uh, well, thankfully, you guys are uh, helping to get to the bottom of it and really put out information that hasn't been out there before. So well done on you guys. And an hour just flew by. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, imagine listening to the 13 episodes. That's going to be truly riveting. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us, guys.